This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, we explore the exciting but often unknown world of streaming music. I speak with Matt Bates, the former chief of rock programming at Pandora, about how streaming sites like Spotify have upended the music business and may be threatening the existence of terrestrial radio. We'll also talk about the impact Taylor Swift has had on streaming music from her position of power. And I'll offer some commentary on the changes in music in my lifetime. But as you'll see, I've never been more excited to listen to music than I am right now. It's time for the Nexus. Matt Bates has been a leader in the radio and music industry for two decades. He has been the head of rock programming at Pandora, the program director at KFOG in San Francisco, and is the founder of Very Small Industries, a cloud-based content management platform for streaming music curators, podcasters, and broadcast radio. On a personal note, I encountered Matt on three separate occasions when he was a DJ back in the day in the Reno Tahoe area, Boise, Idaho, and San Diego. And quite frankly, he's the best DJ I've ever heard. Matt Bates, welcome to the Nexus. Well, you're very kind, Art. It's, uh, it's been great getting reacquainted with you. <laughs> so let's talk about streaming music. Um, it was something, streaming music, I resisted for a while, and I'm not sure why. It's such a godsend, and I've been able to hear music I never have heard before or wouldn't have gone out and bought. It's got to be the most obvious statement, though, to say that it's disrupted the music and radio industry. But is this coming at a price to so-called terrestrial radio, the free over-the-air radio stations we've known for 50, 75, maybe even 100 years? Yeah, it, it undoubtedly is uh, making life even more difficult for terrestrial broadcasters, but it's not terrestrial radio's only problem, right? So streaming music fundamentally was created as a, an alternative to uh, piracy, uh, as a means of capturing revenue that was being lost, right? And um, broadcast radio, when you, when you, as you, you know, very aptly said, it's, it is a godsend for any kind of music nerds like us, because you know, all of a sudden, the entire world's record store is available to us. It's, it's the democratization of it. It's ubiquity. It's uh, anything you want, anytime. And, uh, you know, radio can't compete uh, in that sense. Plus, there are layers of curation and discovery within streaming systems, which is what, you know, historically has been radio's bread and butter. But radio suffers from um, a lot of other significant disadvantages. Uh, the means of distribution, um, old tech. Uh, insane debt loads, um, you know, lack of innovation, not necessarily because they don't desire to innovate, but because it's just not feasible. Their margins are already razor thin. Their um, assets are devaluing and the audience is shrinking. And uh, certainly streaming has a, a role to play in that. But I don't think that streamers, you know, started out explicitly saying we want to kill terrestrial radio. Terrestrial radio is dying by a thousand cuts. Yeah, I mean, it. and what would you say, though, is I think a lot of people, I'll, I'll frame it this way, a lot of people, I think, 
aren't clear about how music artists, especially the really popular ones, get paid nowadays. Because we've heard so much about, you know, in the last 20 years, Napster, LimeWire, decimating record sales, people aren't buying music. Yes, that's come back, obviously, to, in, a, in a way, and probably in a big way with iTunes and, and the like. But I think there's definitely a sense that um, unclear, a, a lack of clarity about where money is coming from um, to pay artists. Do, do they get anything from streaming sites at this point? They get a great deal, yeah. I mean, uh, streaming services uh, that are in compliance, and by that I mean they either have direct deals with the labels, the copyright owners, the uh, licensors, the IP, basically. Um, historically, between 70 and 90% of their revenue goes back to the owners of the copyrights. The wow. problem is that, yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's relatively thin margins. I mean, Spotify is, is still not profitable. Pandora had a few profitable quarters, but generally speaking is not profitable. Um, it's sort of, you know, building towards something. Maybe, you know, I'm being generous when I say it's an Amazon model and then they're just reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting in the business. But uh, the majority of the revenue does go towards the copyright holders. Now, the problem is that, um, in most cases, the musicians, the folks that you hear about getting these, you know, $15 royalty checks are not the copyright holders. Uh, there are so many intermediaries that it goes through that take cuts before it gets to the actual songwriter performer. And that's an important distinction because it's two different sets of licenses. The, you know, uh, the, the people who compose the song versus the people who perform the song. Um, radio only pays half of uh, that equation and significantly less of their revenue, uh, broadcast radio that is. Sirius XM was kind of sort of in a weird middle spot and now they're getting closer to parity with the streaming services in terms of the revenue that they pay out. But I, I'm not taking sides on this, but it is important to note when you hear about these, you know, paltry royalty checks, a lot of that has to do with bad deals that artists, you know, uh, created with the labels and, uh, you know, labels and administers of music uh, notoriously having bad accounting and reconciliation. Is that changing at all? Is there any movement in Congress or legislative bodies to try to improve that at all or, or level the stakes, so to speak? Well, certainly, there, there's um, within the confines of policy and government, uh, there was the Music Modernization Act, which was passed in October of last year. Uh, it was sponsored by uh, noted technologist and, and cutting edge, um, you know, streaming music fan, Orrin Hatch. And uh, on one side, and then, then uh, Bob, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, Good, Good Latte or, or Good Lot, the representative from Virginia. And so um, that, that changed a lot. But what, when you're talking about just how does money get to your favorite musician, when I stream a Neil Young song, how does Neil Young get paid? Um, it, a lot of that has to do with historical deals with the label. And they just couldn't account for streaming at the time. So they built it into, you know, an interpretation of the original deal. And they get to keep the majority of that money and not pass it on to the artist. The way it's changing, to ask, answer your question, is not only has there been a tremendous disruption in the publishing and distribution space of music, where all kinds of you know, direct conduits between 
the artist and the fan or the artist and the streaming service to the fan have popped up. And most contemporary music, most contemporary artists that whether they assign a deal for publishing or distribution and promotion via a label are signing much more savvy deals that give them a much larger cut. And um, in many cases, they're circumventing all of these intermediaries and just doing direct deals. Spotify is doing direct deals with artists. Uh, artists are distributing their, their music directly. Artists are handling their own promotion, which is historically one of the big benefits of being on a major record label. So um, it is changing, but there's not a lot that can be done retroactively. There's not a lot that can be done for, you know, artists that signed away their entire catalogs in the 70s, artists right. that signed, you know, comprehensive deals in the 2000s, um, wherein, you know, it's, it's almost in perpetuity. So, you know, they're not going to be able to go back and say, hey, I want to renegotiate this because now all of a sudden you're getting this um, increasing. And, you know, now I think we've hit the tipping point where streaming revenue is a majority of revenue for, um, you know, record labels. Um, not, not a huge majority, but a majority nonetheless, and it's just grown exponentially over the years. There's not a lot that they can do there. So it is a, it is a awkward, you know, growing pains phase that, uh, that we're in. How interesting. I remember, and I don't know if this was pertinent to what you're just saying, but a few years ago, I recall Taylor Swift boycotting Spotify because she felt like she was being, um, you know, for lack of better words, screwed over by them. Is that because she didn't feel like she was making the money she should be making, or is there some other reason for that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's she's had conflicting stances on uh, streaming, but the thing to recognize about Taylor Swift is that uh, she and her father and the principals at Big Machine Records uh, are innovators. They are disruptors. They, uh, you know, she's sort of our big millennial star, right? So they came up in a post piracy early streaming era and they recognize the, uh, opportunities and the risks. And she has the leverage by virtue of the fact that she owns her catalog to do things like that. So a lot of people looked at that as a means of, you know, sort of standing up for all art artists. Um, a lot of that uh, was viewed as, you know, her just leveraging for a bigger deal, considering at that time, at least she's the biggest pop star in the world. And she has um, the ability, she has an ability that most artists don't have, which is to the leverage of, of controlling what happens with her catalog. Interesting. And, and I can tell you, you know, just so many artists do not have that. Did she make actionable change? Did, it act did her stances actually work in her behalf or for others? Well, um, there there were some there there were some um, negotiations that went on behind the scenes that I um, assume went in her favor. You know, she um, she she has this famous quote. It's at least famous within my world um, that I think really speaks to why Taylor Swift would or would not make a deal. She said, "Apple Music has humility, and that Spotify is a corporate machine." <laughs> so she she felt, and and whether that's accurate or not. Um, you know, because I've, I've done business with both of those groups. Um, I, she, I, I think in, 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 you know, it's impossible to, to try to second guess what she was trying to accomplish. I think from a business perspective, it was the right thing to do for her and her team and her property, her intellectual property, her music. And I also think that she saw an opportunity to sort of um, maybe just, you know, gut check the, the streamers a little bit and say, hey, you're nothing without us. 
So start treating us like first class citizens. Interesting. And that, that, that means, that means promotion. That means editorial. That means exposure on playlists. That means, uh, you know, royalties and rates. Um, yeah. But, you know, Taylor Swift is in a unique and a privileged position, whereas most artists have had to make significant pivots in their overall strategy over the last decade or two. And a lot of that went from just being an artist to being an mar- artist and a manager and a promoter and a distributor and figuring out how to make more money from touring. And, you know, a big part of this is, is it's inevitable, but, you know, it's just the decline in physical music sales as well. Obviously, that, that's a rounding error at this point. Well, that let me. I want to go back to terrestrial radio in a minute or so. But before I do that, um, I posed the question about like in the last two decades, the you know the the music industry has been decimated by piracy and all of that. Have they recovered, or is that never going to recover? Are those um, over? So I don't. Yeah, I don't have the fiduciary responsibility within any of these companies. I've been privy <laughs> to the records. No, but I'm just saying I don't want to answer, you know, as if I'm the, uh, you know, chief revenue officer for uh, either side. Right. But I will say that um, I do believe that um, we're back to, you know, pre, let's say, 2006 levels. Um, that was really, you know, the, the late 90s, early 2000s was the uh, golden days of physical sales. Sure. And it was just, you know, through the roof, more disposable income, uh, more avenues for kids to discover music, thereby more uh, desire to purchase. Um, but the, the streaming revenues primarily, radio, radio uh, revenues don't touch a label's bottom line because they don't pay a label. Uh, they pay the um, mechanical licenses the, uh, to, to the uh, performing rights organizations. And it's a flat fee and it's a low fee and it's certainly not a parity with everybody else. But the streaming revenue... Um, has allowed the music business to recover. Um, and again, I, I don't want to speak for them and say, oh, things are just as great as they were when you know people were selling tens and hundreds of millions of CDs. Um, but it is substantial. It is substantial, it is significant, and it is giving them life, absolutely. And you touched on something just a moment ago I do want to follow up on. Um, you had said radio does not pay these kinds of royalties, but that streaming does. What, what are the dynamics of that? And is there any kind of movement to, to get radio to do that? There's been a uh, movement for the last decade, really since the inception of the streaming space, to get broadcast terrestrial radio to parity with what everybody else has to pay. And when I say everybody else, I'm including even Sirius XM in that now. Most of these deals have been brokered directly, but the deals that are not direct uh, and are just uh, blanket are you know the uh, what what you pay to the songwriters and the composers of the music, um, the performers, and especially now and within contemporary music, with uh, especially within the verticals of EDM and hip hop, you you may have twenty five songwriters on a song and one you know one performer. So um, the easiest way to explain that is Drake does not get directly played when he is played or paid rather when he is played on terrestrial radio. He does or he does through his series of intermediaries and whoever owns his intellectual property as a performer um, from the streaming services. Uh-huh. And radio, radio's argument against that, and it's really what, what the, 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 there's an argument and a sub-argument. The, radio, the, the argument against it is we're giving you free promotion. So we, this, these are like commercials. These are like three and a half minute commercials. When we play your music and we talk about it, 
and we give it to people for free, we are promoting you effectively. We are, we are giving you a larger platform, which, you know, fundamentally is, is correct. The sub argument is that terrestrial radio uh, would not survive a uh, royalty increase or an additional royalty that they had to pay because their margins are so thin and their assets are so devalued at this point. It, it would potentially kill music-based radio. And uh, music-based radio has fired back somewhat cheekily, but, you know, it's, it's a legitimate conversation. They say, okay, well, if you want me to pay you for playing your records, then let's bring payola back. Oh. We're going to charge you. We're going to charge you for the airtime. Oh, oh, payola. Like and so Dick Clark. And yeah, all payola. Like we're, yeah, we're going to pay you. We, you are going to pay to be played on my radio station. Oh. If you want you know, uh, this kind of consideration, it doesn't come down to curation or what's best for the audience anymore. It's, you know, basically what happens to, you know, what's the highest bidder. And, you know, going back less than a decade, you know, radio was still engaging in that kind of behavior. The Spitzer investigation kind of blew that wide open and, and changed the entire dynamic. It was just filtered through a lot of different layers. And so, but, but to, without getting too far off track, um, this is factored into this new model. The fact that all streaming services, if you wanted to start one tomorrow, I would recommend against it because it's a fairly saturated market. But if you wanted to start one tomorrow, you would have to basically say, A, I have to start with a tremendous amount of capital just to get in compliance and be able to play this music. And B, I'm going to plan. Apologies for that. A, uh, scared dog here. Um, the, beyond that, um, it would be uh, you have to build into your plan that, you know, let's say 80% or 80 plus percent of your uh, total revenues are going to go right back to the folks that own the music and the publishing and the performance rights. Whereas radio uh, had never factored that into their um, business model. So you'd, you'd be asking them to take what is already a, uh, you know, in many cases, very thin and in other cases, a negative margin and dedicate money that doesn't exist in their business um, to, to uh, paying the, the, the record labels and the performers, most importantly. And you, you know, when you cite eighty to ninety percent, uh, does Spotify make any profits? How are they? How are they existing? It's all. It's going to be all about scale, and it's going to be about you know too big to fail, right? So I would argue that Spotify is already too big to fail. They play too. Their their role in the music ecosystem is too important to lose at this point. They are the um, you know globally the most preferred. Uh, provider of content uh, they've developed over time and maybe that you know jab that Taylor Swift took at them was a catalyst for this but they've developed I think a really good working relationship with artists with uh, with uh, labels and, and by the way that in itself is a demonstration of what I was talking about earlier artists love being on Spotify artists love working with Spotify artists love getting um, you know editorial consideration and frontline uh, promotion on Spotify because they're artists, they're not accountants, right? They, they want to get their music out to as many people as possible. They're not sitting there crunching the numbers. There are a handful of artists that do. David Lowry from, you know, Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven, and he's very wise and he makes a lot of really good points. But if you've got, you know, an 18-year-old kid who just got signed and received a check that is fully recoupable by the label, by the way, but is more money than he's ever seen, and all he wants to do is get his music to as many people as possible then, oh, Spotify wants me to do something. Sure. Radio wants me to do something. Sure. Anybody who wants to, you know, promote my music, that's great. But Spotify, um, you know, now that they're a public company, they're, they're, they're not profitable. 
Um, they've, they're doing a tremendous amount of investment in the non-music audio space, you know, audiobooks and podcast networks and, and the means to do that, which is, you know, the business that I am currently working in. And, um, they, uh, I think it's just going to be a matter of scale too big to fail. And if things get rough for them, maybe they can renegotiate. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, all three of the major U.S. record labels, um, own a stake of Spotify. Part of the deals, the direct deals that they got done included equity for those labels. So in, in that sense, the labels are benefiting not only from what Spotify plays, but from Spotify's success. How interesting. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people knew that part to it either. It's, it's interesting. Um, Sirius XM, are they in the same sphere, would you say? I mean, I know they're not considered a, quote, streamer, but I mean, in terms of legislative ideas, profitability, all of that, are they, how are they viewed and how are they doing? Uh, Sirius XM is doing incredible uh, because they're diversified. So when you say they're not considered a streamer, I'm a big, big, big Sirius XM fan and user. And the primary means by which I use SiriusXM rather than having an activation in every single one of my vehicles is just via my phone. And with that, you can time shift, which means I can go back and listen to my favorite show on XMU again. Or, you know, I, so, so it's not quite on demand, but it's time shifted, which introduces complexity and a whole other set of licenses. All the bumper music that our friends on POTUS uses, all the great stuff that Julie, all the, you know, 80s punk and new wave stuff that she plays, you know, all of that has to be accounted for. So SiriusXM has its own um, sort of set of licenses. They are in compliance. Uh, there was a big lawsuit brought against them by uh, the two principals from the band, the Turtles, because there was an issue with pre-1973 copyright not being considered in the same way that current copyright or post-1973 copyright was. That was resolved. Sirius paid. Um, as a company, they are profitable. And now they are absolutely in the streaming and on-demand uh, uh, business in earnest because they purchased Pandora. That's right. That's right. How so is the synergy... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, I cut you off, but I mean, that's right. They, they, they purchased Pandora, and are, is that going well? Well, I think it's, it's a, it makes sense. Pandora uh, has been on the decline for a few years now, and uh, so it, it, they needed a lifeline, and SiriusXM needed to buy rather than build the technology that will allow them to remain everything to everyone. You know, initially they've doubled down just on the personality and content and, you know, basically analogous to broadcast radio, but on a different platform, uh, a different uh, means of distribution. And they did it very, very well. And they grew and they became profitable. And, you know, the folks, I, I don't want to sound like I'm shilling for them, but the folks that run that company are brilliant. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Pandora... They got it at the price they wanted after sniffing around for several years. Um, they're going to allow Pandora to continue to live. And Pandora is going to bring a substantial uh, IP uh, platform or uh, I should say portfolio to SiriusXM that will allow them to much more easily navigate this complicated licensing matrix, not to mention the tech stack required to uh, create it. That's fascinating. That's um they, they sound like they're, they're doing very well then. And I, so then I go back to um, a couple of the points you've made about terrestrial radio having, you know, very thin margins and um, music based terrestrial radio, I guess I could, should say 
not doing so well. I mean, is it possible that that will disappear in five to 10 years and we're just going to have news talk if on, on over the air radio? Is that a possibility? So, over the, over the years, and there's plenty of archived, um, you know, content wherein I've been on a panel or I've written an op-ed and I kind of want to walk some of that back in the sense that I was a lot, I was, I was fired up at the time when I, when I first started becoming a real broadcast radio contrarian, not because I don't love the medium. I'm in love with the medium. Um, it, it was, I was that kid that had his, you know, earbud in at night listening to Art Bell or, you know, it's, it's a very intimate medium. It's a very immediate medium. And, you know, the, the companionship, the personality, all that stuff is great. The problem that radio has is twofold. Um, number one, uh, it's a matter of distribution, right? So no one's going to download. If you have five favorite stations, you have to download. Usually, I mean, there's aggregators out there, but, you know, five different apps, and you're only going to get that. You still have the 10-minute long commercial breaks. And so radio is now a medium of convenience, not desire. And that's important. People go and actively search out their favorite music sites and or their favorite streaming sites rather and have heated battles over, you know, is it is Apple better than, you know, uh, is Apple music better than than Spotify? Is Spotify better than, um, you know, Amazon? You know, the, all the big players, you know, Deezer globally. Um, there's niche players. And so the point is, is that Radio is a uh, medium of convenience. The majority of radio listening occurs in the vehicle. So you are tied to, okay, well, is someone going to make that choice? Uh, you know, connected vehicles are increasingly more common. A good friend of mine just purchased a Tesla. I was shocked to find out there is no AM radio. Ah. So literally that is gone to them. Wow. And unless you really want to do the extra work, and I know it's not hard work, but in a world of ubiquity and convenience, it is to find the app that will let you stream your favorite AM radio station so that, you know, you can listen to Hannity or whatever. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, if, if they lose the car, they lose everything. You know, I live in San Francisco where um, nobody in the city is listening to the radio. They've all got their earbuds in and they're listening to whatever they want. It might be the radio, but radio is not the first choice. It's really focused on commuter culture. It's morning drive. It's afternoon drive. It's when you're in the car, just hit a button and let it roll. It's still the easiest solution. But for the last decade, uh, a number of different, you know, entertainment, audio entertainment providers have been working very closely with the car manufacturers to make it so that it is seamless to go, I would rather listen to Pandora. I would rather listen to my own music. I would rather listen to that. And so they're, they're on their last, um, you know, major value proposition in the sense that if you're not in a market where there's a lot of in-car usage, then you're struggling. So that's number one. Number two is it's not even that radio hasn't innovated, which they haven't. And there's reasons for that, whether it be, you know, old ways of thinking or whether it be just, you know, it being financially prohibitive. But they, not only have they not innovated, they haven't participated in innovation. And what I mean by that is if you look at the, the, this space, the podcast space, I mean, it is anecdotal, uh, but there's plenty of uh, actionable evidence that suggests that people are consuming podcasts at a, in, an insane rate, the exponential growth curve is is bonkers more even than the uptick in uh in adoption of streaming music there's clearly a desire for content niche content entertaining content and it doesn't have to be live and it doesn't have to be local so radio hasn't participated in any of the technological advances other than you know maybe throwing up a website and a stream with the same amount of commercials and the same homogenous content 
they haven't invested in creating content. In fact, that's usually the first thing to go when you're, you know, in a financially tough situation in broadcast radio is they'll just start cutting the talent, the curators, the programmers, the writers, the producers, you know, you, you can just, you know, run an all music radio station and have incur significantly less cost. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very bearish on the future of broadcast radio and its current iteration. Is it possible that someone will come up with a magic bullet or some sort of interesting new format or a means to accomplish what they need to accomplish, adopt all the existing, you know, innovation that's happened and, um, you know, make a comeback. Anything is possible. But culturally, that's not how broadcast radio works. I spent a lot of time working within broadcast radio. You're really looking at, you know, two or three major companies in the U.S. Um, and this is, this is the case globally as well. Um, if you don't have the device by which you receive radio in your house, which I grew up on radio and love it, I don't have a radio in my house. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to be as ubiquitous as your competitors are. I mean, is there even, I mean, this may sound outlandish, but is there ever a chance in the future that satellite radio could become like democratized to the point that it becomes free or it becomes so low cost that that becomes, you know, the radio quote unquote that we used to know? Not until uh, the price of launching and maintaining said satellite comes down significantly. It is, uh, you know, over a billion dollars per satellite for them to do that. It is, uh, it is more money than maybe the entirety of broadcast radio has. Um, I like what you're thinking. Uh, and maybe there will be a new technology that deals with different bands or can piggyback off of existing satellites. But keep in mind, SiriusXM's Sirius XM engineer own and launch their own satellites, maintain their own satellites. I think they've got a, uh, you know, a lifespan of eight, 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got to, you know, swap them out periodically. But if you're talking about uh, utilizing the satellite connection that Sirius XM, uh, you know, blanketed the, you know, entire car space with so well and starting to stream through that, I think you'd have to go through Sirius XM. They're the gatekeepers. So, no, I don't, I don't see that as a, uh, as, as a possibility. FM radio is always going to be consumed via FM and via streaming. That's it. So what's more likely is that, you know, the adoption of, you know, even better LTE, uh, even better infrastructure, connected devices everywhere. But then you have to m get the customer to make the choice. Do I want to listen to Spotify? Do I want to listen to Sirius XM? world-class talent, world-class programming, or do I want to listen to my local radio station do swap and shop, you know? Hmm. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, in this debate, as we wind up, is there anything I've been missing that, that I should be touching upon or, or our listeners should be thinking about in this regard? Well, I mean, the, the reason that I have always enjoyed you and your analysis and, and now your podcast is because you are very objective. And, um, you know, when it comes to this debate, it is pretty nonpartisan, yeah. um, you know, politically. It's, you know, obviously the, the most recent, um, you know, the biggest act, the uh, Music Modernization Act was sponsored by two Republicans and one Republican in Orrin Hatch that, you know, demonstrated during the debate that, you know, he had no idea really what he was sponsoring. <laughs> and so, and I mean, that's just the way it is. It, it, I'm not, you know, it's not a partisan thing. He just, he, he, he signed on on it. So then you wonder about what the motivation is when you see, you know, certain bills being pushed through on behalf of radio. It seems like, you know, uh, predictably the folks that are more 
um, open to lobbying are the folks that end up sponsoring these bills. Um, but it is largely bipartisan and it's really going to come down to the FCC because they're going to have a hard choice to make. They've got a lot, you know, on their plates already, but they're going to have a hard choice to make, which is not dissimilar, I think, to like the United States post office, you know, do we prop up this, this medium, um, or do we let it just sort of, you know, go the way of the dinosaurs? I'm not saying radio is going to be gone in 10 or 15 years. Um, one funny anecdote, I was in a meeting maybe 15 years ago with Garmin GPS and, you know, they were anticipating connected cars and they were trying to figure out, you know, how they stay relevant. And when I mentioned my background in broadcast radio, one of the principal product folks there had said, you know, oh, well, you know, we figure in like 10 years, we'll be able to buy up all that bandwidth, all that FM bandwidth and use it to transmit GPS. Hmm. And so there are a lot of people who are very bearish on radio. I think it's going to take longer than that to get there. But I mean, the debt load is unsustainable for most broadcasters, the privatized ones. Public radio, I think, will always do well. And public radio has always, not only have they figured out a better way of monetization via underwriting, but they've also, um, you know, national public radio specifically, but all of the other, um, you know, platforms and networks within public radio have done a really good job of staying uh, up to the times with, um, uh, with technology. And so I say that as a means of demonstrating, I think it's just best content wins. But if you're trying actively to get someone to use a fourth or fifth or sixth channel of distribution that they're not accustomed to, people want, want everything in one place and they want it to be seamless and they want it to be ubiquitous. And it certainly seems that in terms of customer behavior in the marketplace that um, the uh, behavior has been determined. It's one app. I listen, I mean, I, I have an iPhone, but I listen to your podcast via Spotify because it's, I'm already in Spotify and it's so easy to search and find. I don't use the Apple podcast app for one thing. And then, you know, um, uh, but Spotify for something else. I use Spotify for nearly everything, podcasts and music. I use Sirius XM for content and, uh, I don't want any additional, uh, choices or apps or devices in my life. And certainly seems like radio is kind of, become other in that categorization that makes yeah i i can i can see that that very much um well this has been great this has been fascinating stuff and uh something we want to keep an eye on for the foreseeable future and uh i think a lot of people you know are not sure about a lot of this and and just sort of accept it and and you've provided a lot of illumination into an area i admittedly don't know a whole lot about. So, uh, Matt Bates, I, I thank you for joining us today on the Nexus. And, and Art, I'm grateful for the time and the insight. And uh, most importantly, you know, if you have a favorite broadcaster, support that broadcaster. If you love public radio, get involved in the pledge drive. If FM is meaningful to you um, as a medium, then, you know, please support, let them know you're out there because their methodology by which they measure audiences. uh, you know, laughable. It's, it's not accurate. It's not, it's not meaningful. And um, there are plenty of good people creating great content within broadcast radio. The business model is broken. Perhaps someone will fix it. But if, uh, you know, if, if I came off as too abrasive um, when it comes to the future of uh, terrestrial radio, then please support your favorite terrestrial radio stations. They need it now more than ever. That is great advice. Well, thank you for joining. Thanks, sir. 
The push and pull, the tug of war within the music industry that Matt Bates described has got me thinking of my own journey of music and what I've seen in my lifetime. Quite simply, the evolution makes your head spin if you analyze it. In the late 70s, when I was a little boy, the latest advancement was eight-track tapes, where you could play a cartridge that contained eight channels or tracks, thus allowing you to play your music in your car and not rely on the radio. I vaguely remember in our 1975 Buick Regal, which was top of the line back then, I might add, we had an eight-track player. As time went on and I got to be music listening age, the next best big thing were audio cassettes that you could play in a stereo or in the hottest new invention, the Sony Walkman. It seems all the technological advances were to make music as portable and personalized as could possibly be done in whatever particular year or decade it was. To think recorded music started with a gigantic gramophone that you sat around listening to in your living room is astonishing to me. Eventually, there would be transistor radios you played at the beach or the ball game, and boom boxes decades later. And through it all, the march of technology has been fascinating. But back to my journey. After the Walkman, I got to see the advent of compact discs, my first one being the double disc, The Door's Greatest Hits, gifted to me at Christmas of 1988. I would soon put my record player away and eventually get a disc man to play my prized CD possessions as a teenager. Even then, however, I was keenly aware of how ridiculously expensive CDs were, often $18 for a single compact disc that had only one or two songs worth listening to. I wondered if anyone else saw this as a scam like I did. Turns out, lots of people saw compact discs as a scam, and the record companies propelling them as crooks. It got so bad in the late 90s that record companies stopped releasing songs as singles you could buy, which forced you to pay 18 bucks for the album with lots and lots of filler music. The fever popped, of course, when Napster came out of nowhere and allowed you to illegally download music. Now, I consider myself a law-abiding man, but I was only too happy to steal music through the murky file sharing of the World Wide Web, and millions of people worldwide were with me too. Technology had marched forward once again, and this time beat the music industry at its own game. From there, the advances seemed to happen lightning quick. MP3 players, iPods, iTunes... Satellite radio meant you could listen to the same radio station as you drove across the country with only interruptions for sleeping and getting gas. And as we talked about with Matt Bates, streaming began in Europe and has now upended the entire industry. I haven't bought CDs regularly in 20 years, but I am paying for music again after having roughly used Napster and LimeWire for 12 years or from 1991 to 2011. Through every juncture, the sound has gotten better, crisper, louder, with more sophisticated sound programming and engineering to make the product more enticing to the ear. Are the songs and artists continually getting better? Well, that's for another edition of the Nexus, though I'd say the short answer is no. But for what is being made now, if it's good, it sounds fantastic, and it's easier than ever to listen to. With streaming, I have access to albums I wouldn't have considered buying in the $18 CD days or even the $9 cassette days. 
Now I can listen to artists' deep catalogs, and it's changed my life. I'm more into music now than I ever was, and that's all because of improved technology and access. Music on terrestrial radio may be dying, but you'll always be able to find it in other formats. How will music sound in 25 to 50 years? I know I'm eager to find out. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Thank you for listening, and if you like this podcast, please share it far and wide. See you next time, and be well. Thank you.